ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. As we begin today's podcast, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Today, Studio 19 has come to the southern suburbs of Canberra to the Federal Department of Health for the big one. Our interview with the leaders of Team Health, Australia's Chief Medical Officer, Dr Brendan Murphy, and his colleague, Caroline Edwards. Three months ago, Dr Brendan Murphy would have walked down any Australian street unrecognised, but now I'm not so sure. Dr Murphy has been the reassuring presence alongside the Prime Minister, the man with the facts and the graphs, warmly congratulating citizens when their behaviour deserved it, giving them a clip under the ear when they didn't. At times stern but always fair, Dr Murphy in many ways is now every Australian's favourite uncle. He served as Australia's Chief Medical Officer since 2016 and he joins me in Studio 19. Dr Murphy, welcome to Work With Purpose. His partner in crime at the top of team health is Caroline Edwards. Caroline Edwards, the acting secretary of the Department of Health, is a shining example of everything that is good about Australian public servants. She joined the APS with a first class honours degree in law from Monash University and has served in Treasury, Human Services, Prime Minister and Cabinet and Health. A feature of Caroline's service has been her commitment to Indigenous affairs, spending 10 years working in the Northern Territory in Aboriginal legal aid as a judicial registrar in the Northern Territory Magistrates Court and in the Federal Court, where she mediated and case-managed Native title as a judge's delegate. She also joins me in Studio 19. Caroline Edwards, welcome to Work With Purpose. Now, we'll get to all things COVID in just a moment. And just fair warning to the audience, there is every chance that this chat will go a little bit longer than normal because I've been told that my two guests are good talkers and I go all right myself. So maybe prepare an extra large cup of tea or if you're in the garden, prepare to be there a bit longer or on a walk, maybe go a little bit further because I'm sure that this will be a great conversation. And we will get to everything health and everything pandemic, but I think we've got to start with the people because I think everyone wants to know the people and that's been the great success of Work With Purpose. So, Dr Murphy, if I could start with you, who are you and and where do you come from? Thanks. Look, I started off life uh, as a, what, an academic kidney doctor, a renal physician, and I... But maybe let's go back a little bit further. Where are you born? Born in Melbourne. uh, Grew up in Melbourne, fairly conservative, middle-class upbringing, uh, went into medicine because it was an expected thing to do, um, and thought I would finish my whole career as a a leader of a clinical department and a big research lab. So I was a professor of medicine. I had research labs with rats and discovered some new interesting parts of the human body, wrote papers, had grants and thought I would finish 
my career that way. But I was appointed head of uh, the renal unit in Melbourne at the age of about 35, which is about 15 years earlier than most people are. And most people stay in those jobs till they retire. And the idea of doing the one job for 35 years filled me with a bit of horror. Uh, so I determined to do something else by 50. And then when I turned 50, I was approached by the Victorian Health Department to be a health service CEO, having had no management training at all um, and knowing very little about management. And so suddenly I was in charge of an organisation without eight and a half thousand staff and an $800 million budget uh, and really knew nothing much about management. I knew a lot about health services and health. And so I had a steep learning curve. Um, Spent 11 years as a CEO and learnt a lot about management and people and reform. And all through that time, though, I did a lot of health system reform work at Health Workforce Australia. And then this job came up in the Commonwealth, the Chief Medical Officer, and it was a great opportunity to bring back my clinical knowledge and skills, but to continue my sort of reform journey. So I came to the department with the idea of only ever being a five-year Chief Medical Officer, but not really intending to have a public health crisis at all, but to, to lead a lot of health system reform, workforce reform, MBS reform, uh, and to really bring that clinical uh, background into, into the department. And, but away from your professional career, what are, who are you? What, do you, you know, what are your interests? <laughs> what do, you, do you garden? Do you walk? Do you... Well, I, one of my hobbies is languages. I've, I speak fluent Italian and uh, that I've been studying that. I ha haven't been able to do it in the last few years but for most of the last 20 years. Um, go to Italy a lot when I can. I'm currently learning singing. Um, again I've had to put that on hold. That's gone, it's on COVID ice. Um, I'm not a very good singer but I'm, I like singing Italian opera arias. Uh, I've got two boys who are both married and now two granddaughters who I'm completely besotted with. Up until COVID struck, I was still going back to Melbourne on weekends and coming up to Canberra for the weekdays. And I've been in Canberra now sort of because of COVID for the last two months mostly, but hopefully we'll get a bit more time in Melbourne. Uh, I, I like uh, classical music and uh, I like reading. Right. Uh, that's probably enough. <laughs> and on, on the AFL spectrum as a Victorian, do we, do we well, locate I, ourselves a, a well, team? Well, it's interesting because uh, I used to support Hawthorne, then I grew out of football. My wife used to be, was Vice-Chancellor of Deakin University and she was the number one female ticket holder for Geelong. Oh, um, okay. So I had to... I was dragged along as a handbag <laughs> to as her partner. Um, in fact, the, a very funny story was that when they, I was there when they won all their grand finals and she got to go out on the ground with... She was the only woman on the ground and I and the wives of the board and <laughs> went down to the rooms to wait for them, which was very, very good. <laughs> but so I had, to, I had to adopt Geelong. OK, uh, right. Yeah. All right. Um, Caroline, you, what's your story? Where are you from and who are you? Uh, I'm one of those people who are from Canberra. <laughs> I, I grew up here um, in a ordinary middle-class family and all the benefits that brings. Um, but I so guess were, were your parents public servants? Well, no, my parents are unusual. My mother was uh, a Spanish woman. She came out here as an adult. Um, and so I've 
consider myself a Southern European, even though my name's Edwards. And my father was a journalist, um, but the sort of unusual thing about him is he was completely blind from very young. And so I grew up in a household which was completely normal to me, but I've since learned was reasonably unusual. Uh, and I actually credit that with a lot of the things I've learned. We were a household full of language, languages um, and very tactile and close because we didn't do any of those traditional things that sighted fathers do with their kids. We did wow. other things. That's, so what was that like, growing up without a father with, with no sight? It was great. I consider it as a massive advantage. Um, we, he didn't drive, so we did lots of things together. Mum drove. Uh, so the gender roles were all mixed up and so on. It was lots of speaking. We used to tape one another, do impromptu speeches, as that was sort of one of the games we played. I read to Dad all the time, so sort of a lot of my literacy is probably based in that sort of thing. And and they were very close together, and it was it was just a very talky household. Yeah, right. And what sort of journalism was he involved in? Well, he was a radio journalist for obvious reasons. Okay. Uh, but he met my mother actually when he was working as a freelance radio journalist in London, living by himself, which you can imagine in the early 60s was a pretty brave thing for a totally blind Australian man to do and a bit of a shock to my mother's family, I have to say, when they <laughs> paired up. How did they meet? Uh, my uh, father's uh, family friend was the ambassador for refugees in Spain at the time in the post-war sort of period and my mother was his executive officer. Wow. And so your pathway into the public service was it? You know, you obviously had the you got the first class honours degree, and then was it straight into the public service? No, I worked in commercial law for a while, um, and I never found it very satisfying to tell the truth. I mean, I do like legal sort of thinking, but I don't like the individual nature of legal practice. I was more a problem solver, yeah. uh, and so more by accident than anything else, I fell into a job as a legal officer in the then Office of Indigenous Policy in Prime Minister and Cabinet as a very young woman and um, came back to Canberra from where I'd been studying and, and jumped into that. And that Indigenous part of your career, it's obviously something that is, you know, you've committed a lot of your time and effort and energy and, you've, you know, the attitude that you brought to it. Um, how did that happen? Was it just through happenstance or was it something that was motivating you through, you know, younger... It was completely happenstance okay. to start with, but it really grabs you. I mean, working with Aboriginal people is one of the most fantastic, exciting things you can do. I mean, the problems facing Aboriginal Australia are huge, we know that, um, but we don't often talk about the hospitality and the innovation and the genuineness that Aboriginal people all over Australia bring, and, and particularly in those remote communities that I worked with in the Northern Territory. I mean, my admiration for Aboriginal people and how much they have managed in this country is enormous. And uh, I do, my poor old Indigenous Health Division here, uh, suffers because I always give them a bit too much attention when really... <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, that's great. And it's, see, that to me is... It, it, it's it's wonderful to locate the people into the story, you know, and I think it's so important that, that we do locate the people because I'm sure, if, you know, you never thought that you would find yourselves in the positions that you have um, found yourselves leading um, what has been such a remarkable uh, effort Um at the sort of the sharp end of, of the global pandemic. But um, uh, Dr Murphy, if I might just go to you and perhaps start with, you know, where it began, where it started. Where did this thing start to shake and start to get your attention and getting you to think as the Chief Medical Officer, mm. hang on, we've got something on our hands here that we've got to deal with? Uh, it was early January when I was on holiday in Rome 
Oh, good, yeah. good, uh, good place to be now, but uh, then, but not now. Um, when we heard of these reports of a novel coronavirus in the city of Wuhan in China, but all the early reports were suggested that it was only being transmitted from animals to humans. And we've seen lots of these, what we call zoonotic viruses in the past, some of the bird flus like that. And so you, you worry, you know, the worry is that it, will develop sustained human-to-human -human transmission. But the early reports suggest that it hadn't and that it was only 50 cases and they all seemed to have got it from animal exposure. So we were at that stage, I remember, going on ABC radio saying we're alert but not alarmed. Then I was back in Australia then on about the 19th, 20th of January. After a week of sort of radio silence from China, we suddenly got new information that... There was human-to-human -human transmission. There were many more cases than we thought, that healthcare workers had been infected and there were seriously ill people on ventilators. And then, then our alarm bells started because whilst it was still possible at that stage to contain it in Wuhan, once you have sustained human-to-human -human transmission, the chances of containment are very much less and we, we really activated all of our processes from that moment on. And so, those processes are what? Well, what, we, what actually happens? So we, the first, one of the first, we have a lot of pre-existing stuff. And it, again, I think a lot of credit needs to be given to systems and processes that were set up well before my time. So we have our Australian Health Protection System. Where there's a committee that I chair, which consists of all the chief health officers and a range of experts that, you know, because we're a federation, a public health service Delivery is done in the states and territories, but the Commonwealth plays this crucial coordinating role. So, but we, we for years we've funded a th group called the Public Health Laboratory Network. So, they're, they're labs that are, do diagnostic tests. So, one of the first things we did was said to them, "You've got to get a test quickly." You've, and there were no commercial tests, so they they were one of the first people in the world to culture the virus. They they set up the diagnostic tests. And we, we started meeting every day. This Health Protection Committee used to meet about four times a year. It's probably met every day up other, up other than a couple in the last three or four months. We, did, we, made, we listed this under our Biosecurity Act as a, as a disease of significance so that we had all the powers to put in border measures. Um, we, we activated our research modellers that we've been funding for years in, at the University of Melbourne to start looking at this data and we, and we really focused on preventing the risk. Initially the risk was people coming out of Wuhan in China so we put in early border measures to, on flights from China then they stopped and then, we, then probably one of the most significant things we did was on the 1st of February and I remember this well, uh, sitting in my house in Melbourne, looking at the data, and I said to my spouse, we're going to have to shut the borders to China. And I spoke to the health minister and the prime minister, and I can't talk about process, but, but by that night the borders were closed. Uh, which was an, And that probably was one of the most significant things that prevented us getting what happened in Italy the US, the UK, where they had a lot of cases coming from China that spread in the community before they really even knew it. So we, we detected all of the early cases that came out of Wuhan. We had the tests, we had the public health tracing, and we isolated them. 
and at no stage have we had large-scale community transmission. That, that moment where you've sort of came to that decision mm. point, like, how does that feel when you sort of go, OK, I actually have to pull the trigger here? Well, I think one of the most rewarding things about this whole response is that every government, state and federal, has said, tell us the health advice and we'll take it. And that has been a, a very strong feature of the Australian response and even the National Cabinet, the collectiveness of everyone coming together. So, you know, I felt at all times that uh, my ministers and the Prime Minister were listening and supporting and and they were prepared to co-own the, the decisions. Um, but they were very keen that, that we had this collective advice from the... Health Protection Principal Committee with all the Chief Health Officers so that so that they knew that they were working on the best available advice. Now, the challenge with responding to something like this virus is that there is no rule book. We had a, we had a plan, we had a very good pandemic influenza plan, but a pandemic influenza plan is based on the premise that you'll have, that a vaccine will come in three or four months. There is no such plan for this virus. So we were we we have at all times been, you know, taking the best possible guess as we went forward. But I do want to emphasise just how much preparation had been done. You know, we had a national medical stockpile, we had the plans, we had the public health laboratory network, we had the infection control advisory group. And if we hadn't had all those sort of precedent conditions, we would have been in a lot of trouble. Mm. So, uh, Caroline, to you, in your role... Um, what, what was your story? When, where were you? And I know that you had been here, you were across at PMNC, but tell me your story. So I was sort of just settling into the new job at PMNC. Right. Um, and Glennis rang me, Glennis Beecham. Glennis Beecham, yeah. Um, and said to me something to the effect of, oh, we just need you to come back to health for a few weeks just to settle <laughs> Brendan in. And I said, oh, well, that sounds really great. Like, I love health. Um, but I'm so, going so on what date was this? Was this sort 20, of it was the 24th of February that I arrived. Right, but when did Glennis pick up the phone and about the 19th of February? Okay, right. So, so had, had so in your other job over at PMNC, had you sort of were you paying attention to this, or were yeah, you just well, like was, the rest of us? I mean, I was overseeing health from the PMNC right, okay. end, so I'd been involved with COVID, had been to meetings with Brendan at and seen what was going on, and we were doing a lot of work on COVID already. Uh, but when Glennis said it, um, said, well, if people want me to, that sounds great. I am going on holidays on the 25th of March, so that's a good end date, <laughs> I said. Um, and I think I might have said something like, oh, that's good. Brendan can do the COVID stuff and I'll do everything else, thinking that there would be anything else. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, by about the end of the first week in March, I think we had a um, health minister's meeting in early March, which we thought was going to be about hospital agreements and other things, and of right. course, yeah, yeah, all that's about right. COVID. Um, yep. uh, after that, it all just went, everything was COVID, and we had to completely reshape the way the department worked in order to respond. So, Brendan was fully occupied a million hours a, a day doing the medical advice and working with the Prime Minister on every... So, but we had to actually implement all the measures that were coming out of it, and um, we had no structure to do that sort of thing. So it was all working from scratch to turn all of our existing functions into what we needed to do to so, roll out the health response. So take me then through that decision-making process. So is it you don't have the structure, how are you thinking about, okay, I've got all of this to organise, and not just in the department, mind you, because then there are, across really the whole of the APS, there are all of those different committees being stood up. 
So the, the first thing that happened is there was a long weekend, the Canberra Day weekend, which yep. we're all looking forward to having a weekend. And instead of having a weekend, we spent all three days, uh, all of the executive and a lot of the rest of the department working up the $2.4 billion package that was announced shortly after that. Uh, and that was actually fundamental because we started working differently across teams um, and people were volunteering, I'll work up that measure, I'll work up the other, and just repurposing. So that set us up. Then when we went to implement it, we did probably um, three things that were really important as the pandemic. Uh, one was we repurposed just about every single team in the department to do something different to what it had been doing before. But we didn't change the structure. We said, look, what you're doing in um, medical benefits division is a bit like pathology, so you run the pathology work. Okay. And what you're doing in primary care is a bit like um, the new G GP respiratory clinic. So we repurposed everything within the existing structures. The second thing we did is we had to, one, for the safety of our staff, but also to be exemplars, make sure that we did the um, social distancing and so on that was being recommended absolutely to the... So we moved from... It's four, about 4,000 staff in health, mm. and we still have about 3,000 every day working remotely, including uh, including me and Brendan and also all of the executive. So actually... Um, and that's worked extraordinarily well, and in the surveys we're doing now, people have actually really enjoyed the extra flexibility. Mm. So did you have too much... Any teething problems with that, or did your infrastructure held up well, pretty well? we had some teething problems, but the IT division were magnificent. We effectively rolled out... A, program of IT that was a two-year plan over two weeks. <laughs> so I think there was a weekend or two uh, where we had trouble and we had to actually ration who was on the remote. But by the end of that two weeks, everybody was working fine. Mm. But the third thing yeah, we the third did, thing. Um, which uh, in some ways was the most challenging, is we had to suspend a lot of the rules and processes that we normally work under. So there's an, an exemption which I signed off very early after arriving from all of the procurement rules, which is wow. for a health emergency. Yeah. Uh, so that meant, and we also did all sorts of exemptions about the way product regulation works and so on, because speed meant we just couldn't do the ordinary processes. So that forced us into an environment where we were effectively rules-free and we had to revert to what is APS core business, exercising judgment, taking care, assessing value for money, making sure things were safe and effective. Uh, and in a way, that was a fantastic thing for the teams to do. So instead of ticking boxes and doing rules, it was like, how are you going to make sure we do what we need to do, buy the things we need to buy, support the doctors and what they need to do, um, and look after all of our staff when you don't have a framework in the traditional sense to fall back on? So it's principles-based principles based decision-making. That's right. Okay. Now, is that something that stays post... The, the, the crisis? Well, we really determined at Health, I've been talking about this with the executive, to try and maintain all the things out of this crisis that have been best. Yeah. The breaking down of all the silos, the yeah. having people agile to move between jobs, more flexible workplace so people can work a mixture of home and in the office as needed, and trying to make sure that we retain that good decision-making and when the rules are reimposed, that we find ways to work to streamline and cut through red tape and keep what we think has served as well. So, Dr Murphy, when, when did it sort of stabilise to you or has it stabilised or when did you feel that you'd moved into the, an operating model that was um, repeatable, I suppose, and, and, and balanced that you could think, OK, we've sort of, you know, we're going OK here? Yeah, I think the time um, when we thought we, we could see that we, we had achieved a steady state of control was probably about a month ago when another big step we put in place was uh, 
quarantining returning travellers. Yeah. We, we ha our pandemic in Australia has been very dominated by returning travellers, mostly Australian citizens and permanent residents. So 60% of our cases have been returning travellers. And we'd put in early, very early on, we'd put in a quarantine mechanism. We actually stopped. We've made border control, stop people from now everywhere really coming to Australia and stop people leaving. But we still obviously have to bring our citizens and permanent residents back. But And we had a requirement that they quarantined at home but unfortunately 15% of them weren't complying and they were the people who were seeding community transmission. So we put in this again quite... Uh, how, did, how did you know that? How did you know that they were Well, because the states and territories were checking on them right. and uh, they were doing spot <laughs> checks and uh, finding them... Okay, well, going around knocking yep, on the door absolutely. and they weren't there. They weren't there, okay. yeah. Right. Um, and, and we'd seen these... So we, at one stage, we were close to 400 new cases a day. Yeah. And so, but we were, and, but there were a lot of those were returning travellers or, or quite commonly direct contacts of returned travellers who they'd spread it to. So basically, we've that, once we put in that hotel quarantine, um, we're still getting cases. Most of our cases now are still returned travellers, but they're being detected in quarantine and they're safe. Um, so then we started to see a rapid de-escalation. There was still community transmission, particularly in in Sydney and Melbourne, but the scaling up of the contact tracing and public health response workforce in those states was 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 good, and they managed to sort of really lock down and control them. So now we're in a situation where uh, there are only a couple of states with sort of a bit of transmission. Many of the states have had no cases for a while, but every, but we are permanently exposed by returning travellers and will be uh, for the long haul, and that's why our border measures in some form or another are going to be there. So for the last month we've felt, uh, and that's why we've been on a, a path of very cautious relaxation of the physical distancing measures, but with quite a bit of anxiety that people might go too quickly or not observe the things that they'll have to do permanently until we're rid of this virus. Mm. Now, a, a feature of the podcast is that we hear from the young uh, future leaders um, of the, the public service, and I do have a couple of questions here. And Dr Murphy, to you first. Brendan, uh, please. Uh, sorry, Brendan. <laughs> um, uh, Michaela Geary um, from Australian Border Force at the Department of Home Affairs asks you directly, this year your roles have significantly changed from giving behind closed doors advice to government to being in the living rooms of the public almost daily. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that aspect of, of your role? I found it quite hard. Uh, I found uh, just again in the last few weeks since I've been able to have some, uh, trying to take Saturdays off and I go for a walk around Lake Burley Griffin with my wife and I've taken to wearing sunglasses and a cap <laughs> because... <laughs> People, come, <laughs> people keep coming coming up to me, almost invariably very positive. You know, you're doing a great job, mate, but tell us what's happening. And I, I've, I'm quite uncomfortable with that. Uh, and then I was getting my hair cut in, uh, and the little girl who was the daughter of the hairdresser came up and said to me, how did you get out of the television? Which, uh, <laughs> which was also pretty nice. So it's not a natural place for me. I'm actually quite comfortable doing media, um, the Prime Minister always makes a joke that he prepares his, his, his t speech with quite 
a lot of detail and I go in there without any notes and just talk what comes into my head. And it is something that I've always been comfortable with. As a health service CEO, I have to do a lot of media. Um, but it's not... I don't, I don't... I'm not comfortable with being a known public face um, and, you know, you just have to put up with that and I'll presumably fade fade from the mind of the public <laughs> fairly quickly. But, but it's certainly next level, though, you know, that where you've been, like, that, it's the biggest, you know, the, the, the National Press Gallery, everyone there, everyone interested, yeah. everyone wanting that news. And I've, I've, I've been very impressed by the way that you've been able to sort of, you know, put some of them in their place along the way to say, well, hang on, you know, let's not go down that path. Yeah. That's not where we want to go with that. So that, that takes a bit of confidence that perhaps... I uh, think there, there was a lot of anxiety. In the early days of the pandemic, there were a lot of uh, anxious people in the community, anxious journalists, anxious academics, yeah. and, and we were being peppered with various different points of view um, it's interesting now, I, I remember saying, I was saying to Lee Sales on 7.30 a few weeks ago when she's saying, you know, why aren't you relaxing uh, measures as quickly as, yeah. you know, as people want? Oh, and oh, I oh, said, oh, it, oh. said it was only three weeks ago that, or a month ago that you and your, your experts were saying we need to shut down, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of very frightened people. A lot of my medical colleagues have been terrified about what they've seen overseas and... And so we have had to stick to a middle ground, pragmatic, best uh, evidence and, uh, uh, and it's been quite hard because there are some very strident views out there um, and we have to be pragmatic and, and, and take, take, take the best course. And I think we've managed to do that so far and hopefully it's been more by good process than good luck. Mm. And Caroline, to you, a question from one of your own, actually. Um, Avinash Vazirani from the Medicines Regulation Division uh, in the Health Products Regulation Group here at the Department of Health. Uh, and Avinash asks, we all know how serious the COVID-19 pandemic has been and the toll it has taken on Australians and people all around the world. What has impressed you the most about the way the staff in this department have responded to the pandemic? Um, well, I think the department's been absolutely incredible and everybody in it that I've dealt with. And really, they've all been completely, completely committed to a single task. It went immediately over that weekend from an ordinary organ bureaucratic organisation to a 24-7 organisation where everybody did what they had to do. There was no, um, that's my patch. All yeah. of that stuff disappeared yeah. and people really embraced it. But probably the one thing that I'm most proud of is how in all of this time, through all of this really incredibly stressful time, you know, and things like we were doing contract negotiations in the middle of the night to buy ventilators, that sort of thing. Uh, we were really frightened for our country as well. But I can't think of a harsh word that was exchanged amongst the teams. Uh, people were kind with one another and helpful. Uh, there was lots... Of, we had a roster at one stage to try and give people three hours off a week. Um, and people were just jumping up and down to say, no, so-and-so needs a break and so-and-so needs a break. I had to direct the head of the National Incidents Room to have a day off with her small child one day. Um, so just an incredible effort. I mean, the whole place is feeling a bit weary, but also enormously proud. And 
it's really been an enormous privilege to be able to lead such a fantastic team through, you know, one of the greatest crises our country's seen. Mm. Now, th there's obviously the role here in the department, but reaching out into the rest of the AS, a a APS as well. How have you gone about working that out? Because we, we had a chat a couple of weeks ago um, to Elizabeth Kelly, who was in charge of the medical stockpile. And so industry was saying, okay, what can we do? How can, and so just take us through about how that all started to work. So as you evolved, how did it evolve sort of around you as you were dealing with the, the, the health crisis? Well, industry was a key part of the work because uh, we managed the medical stockpile, but what they did is went out there and used their contacts in industry to try and find local and overseas yeah. suppliers. Yeah, so yeah. that was a fantastic partnership, mm. but it was only one of many. I remember when I first arrived, one of my first tasks was to ring up a whole stack of agencies and say, somebody in your agency is not releasing staff. And the heads of the agencies, without, without exception, all said, oh my goodness, I'll go and fix that straight away. So we began to break down those sort of things. And I've had enormous support. I mean, I'm sort of a newbie acting secretary lobbed into this role on false pretenses. Um, <laughs> but I've got to say... Agile decision-making, that's all right. <laughs> all of the secretarial colleagues have gone out of their way to be supportive and made sure that all the departments work together. Uh, and really, if you ring up and say you're the acting secretary from the Department of Health, all doors suddenly opened. Right. So, and again, a very human response, like so... The number of texts and uh, messages I've had from secretaries and from people all over the service has been really fantastic. And at all levels, people really wanting to help. We brought in people from all over the place and they came over, worked really hard and became part of the team. So it's broken down silos within health, absolutely, mm -hmm. but also uh, uh, lots of partnership beyond. And, and what about out into the States? Because as Brendan said before, it's, you know, the delivery of health is really in, in the, the agency of, of the States. So how... How did that work with the various state departments? Well, it was similar in a way because we had all these um, all these quite rigid structures about how we deal with the states and territories, and there's been good relationships. We really have done some good things, but everything is slow and cumbersome and so on. And over the initial weeks during March, all that sort of basically fell away till we got to a point where there's an email group for all the state and territory health CEOs. We all talked very frequently. We get on the phone and we sort of kept forgetting to include the secretariat because it became irrelevant to have all that right. stuff and instead just talking to one another. And that's one of the other things we've been talking to um, the other states and territories about maintaining. So a good example is, uh, together with one of the deputy CMOs uh, and the whole team, we set up, well, and the states and territories, a real-time intensive care bed reporting system. Okay within two weeks. Oh, and wow. that's the sort of thing that you'd think would be a five-year trajectory normally in Commonwealth state relations. And now we yeah. know exactly what intensive care beds there are out there and who's in them. Yeah, there was that great line um, from Greg Hunt where he said, you know, things that would normally have taken 10 years have been taking 10 days, which I think, you know, Gray gave everybody great confidence that there was this collaborative effort from the delivery arm of, of, of the crisis. Brendan, to you, is there a moment, you know, do you, do you know, through all of this, is there a particular moment where, that, you, that you will always remember? You know, was it closing the borders? Was it something else that when you reflect on that crisis period that you've just been through? Yeah, I think uh, those border decisions are probably the single most important in a sense in that I probably led them all, all of the border decisions, and led them with my colleagues in the states and territories. They certainly supported them. And that they were done against the conventional mantra. WHO has never supported border closures uh, in a pandemic. Our colleagues in 
the UK and Canada who we were talking with really questioned and said, why on earth are you doing that? It won't help. Um, uh, <laughs> history judges things. <laughs> at, in it, but I think that they, these were risky decisions and they hit huge. Yeah. And then the other moment was when we, you know, is in Parramatta. I'd been to uh, the... the COAG meeting, and uh, I think this is, and and that was when the national cabinet was formed, and that was the day that HPPC, the principal committee, recommended to government that we needed to introduce <coughs> major physical distancing measures, and over that coming week, um, uh, we closed down not nearly as much as countries like New Zealand. We kept a lot of things going, but we still put a lot of Australians out of work. And I remember driving to work four days after that, yeah. driving past a Centrelink office yeah. and seeing the queue yeah, right. and realising the enormity yeah. of what we'd done. Mm. It was the right thing to do and we would have had a, you know, terrible consequences if we hadn't done it. But I think what we did was timed appropriately. There were people clamouring for us to go harder for longer and for earlier. I think we got it about right but but th those you know saying to government you need to shut down the entire restaurants teeter dining cinemas clubs casinos all of those sort of things all the people who work in those places that 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 really weighed on me very heavily mm. and and for you caroline is there a, is there a moment is there a time is there an anecdote about uh, this crisis that you'll well i think the one moment just to put it in context like i mentioned my mother from Spain, so yeah. I have a large number yeah. of family in Spain, and um, every night when I was getting home late at night, would be WhatsApping with my relatives, all stuck in their apartments, and worrying about them, and hearing what was going on, and seeing the footage, um, and with another colleague following the Spanish, um, what was happening there. Yeah. So in the context of all of that, it was the day we actually settled the contract to have what I considered to be enough ventilators, um, and that was a, a day. Um, that, you know, it wasn't perfect, it wasn't, you know, but it was enough ventilators, I thought, for if what was I was hearing about in Spain was going to come to Australia, that yeah, we right. would be able to look after people in that way. Yeah. So that insight from over was influencing some of your decision-making, some of your... Um it was certainly keeping it very real mm. um, as to what was actually could happen if we didn't do what we needed to do. Yeah. Um, and so uh, now, luckily, all of my family, almost all of them have had COVID, but nobody was severely right. ill, and even my elderly aunt and uncle are fine. Um, but I was very conscious of what it really meant in a real sense for people. So, sort of certainly drove that we need to protect. And we should never accept any sort of suggestion that anybody's expendable, that we shouldn't close businesses because only so many old people will die. Every one of those old people has a name and a family, just mm. like my family in Spain. And I think that was a real motivator. Mm. And clearly, the, you know, it would seem that much of the, the medical side of it or the, the health crisis is perhaps under control, although, you know, Brendan says you can't be complacent about things, but still a lot to do uh, in this role. And I believe that you were going to be at PMNC because there's sort of a bit of a roundabout, Brendan. You'd been appointed as secretary, but then you were chief medical officer and Glennis was still here and then you were over there. So there's been a bit of musical chairs with all of this. So... What's the update on this? I know I read the other day that you are going to be now the... I'm, I'll move into the secretary role in mid-July and I'm really delighted that I've been able to get Carolyn to stay as an associate secretary because our, our partnership has been fantastic in the last 
few months. Between you two? Between the two of us. It's okay. been a really good partnership. We, we don't second guess each other. We can divide things up. And What's I she like to work with, you can uh, say. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> we have a lot of fun and we, and we, we sort of know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Right. And the things I want to do, the reason I came, the reason I took on the job was because I want to assist the government's health reform uh, objectives. So that's where I've got the connections, the clinical connections, the connections with the states. I want to play a very lead role in the government's reform journey. Uh, including a lot of stakeholder engagement. The other thing I love doing is staff culture. I really want to work on making the department, you know, one of the best places to be. Carolyn is the best public servant I've ever worked with and Ooh. she can... There we go. She, 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 she knows government, the system, yeah. the connections so much better than I will ever know. Yeah. And, I want, and we're going to sort of, sort of share the secretary role <laughs> in a way. And as we have in the last few months, it'll be... There'll be somewhat differences in, in the role and the title, but and uh, but I think we, it it will be an ambiguous structure, but it, but I never get caught up on structures when you've got really good relationships. It's all about people, and we will make it work. And Caroline, what's what's Brendan like to work with? Oh well, he is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, Bit and, risky at times. <laughs> no, it's it's really great because actually Brendan's vision of how the medical community works is one that can actually fit with the bureaucratic one. So we yeah. can actually do things, see reform in a way that's not too fast or too difficult for the, for for doctors. So. Um, he's, it's absolutely fantastic. I think anybody who's worked with me before will laugh um, when they hear that I'm the one who's into the systems and the processes. <laughs> so we'll have to make sure we do obey the rules. Uh, but it is really great. And I'm very, very happy to be able to... I'm very pleased to hand over the secretary role to Brendan on the oh. 13th yeah. of July. Yeah. Um, but having been here and having gone through what was effectively a crisis and a trauma for the department as well as for the nation really want to stay and make sure we maintain those things we've learnt. And um, the relationships here now are just extraordinary and it'd yeah. be a shame not to continue. So very pleased and pretty humbled to be staying. Yeah. Now, I understand for both of you, you were mentioned, you mentioned earlier that um, the 25th of March you had yourself booked to go on a holiday. Where were you going and where are you going now? Because I do believe you're going to have a bit of break before you come back and start again. Well, we did have our once-in-a-lifetime trip to India planned. <laughs> So I think my leave and my visa were cancelled at about the same time. Uh, and, well, if Brendan can open the borders to Queensland, <laughs> we might go and visit my brother. But otherwise, I think I'll be quite happy to... Poke um, around. Yeah, and see my family and so on. For yeah, and, and I believe you, you, you'll have a bit of a break as uh, well. Two-week breaks. Carolyn deserves a break more than I. I had a wonderful holiday in Italy, as I'd said beforehand. <laughs> um, were you starting to sit when you were over there? Were you starting? Was it early stages of it at all that it had? No, Not really. No, no, no we no weren't. I, I thought I'd be going to the secretary role, you right. know, in okay. in in the end of January. So I didn't think that. In fact, I remember this is a final note. I remember yeah. saying to Minister Hunt when I was saying, "Look, you know, I've been three years in the CMO role. Fortunately, I haven't had a big public health crisis." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he blames me for. For causing it, <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll have a little holiday. But hopefully, again, Queensland would be nice if okay. my colleagues would open the borders. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they'll listen to this podcast and uh, and and make an exception. Uh, uh, but listen, um, on behalf of you know everyone who listens to the program, thank you both for your service and for your contribution because I know that it's um 
been enormously difficult, enormously challenging, but you've delivered. Um, and I know that, you know, we're so lucky, aren't we? You know, the, the fact that the system and the people and the decision-making and everything was just about right, you know, as good as it could have been, you know, in... And when we do look overseas, you know, I'm sure, you know, to family, when we do see the crisis overseas, that um, we're so lucky that we're here. So um, in such great hands. So thank you very much for thank your you. service. Thank you. And uh, thanks to you and thanks to our friends and colleagues at IPA, um, once again, who are partners with us in this uh, venture of Work With Purpose. Um, and also to the Australian Public Service Commission for their support in putting the program together. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you would like to check out GovComs, please type that name into your favourite podcast browser and it is sure to come up. And if you do happen to come across our social media promotion for this program, please pass it along and share. And if you're feeling particularly generous, perhaps a rating uh, or a review of the program, because that will uh, help us to get discovered. Now, you will have noticed that we have a second Work With Purpose podcast into the family, and it is Work With Purpose, A National Perspective. Gordon DeBrower, the chair of National IPA, who is a much known and admired uh, member, senior member of the Australian public service community has joined the Work With Purpose team and he will be in conversation with leaders of public services from across Australia and around the world. Now, Gordon is very experienced, very accomplished and a great raconteur. And his first interview is with Chris Eccles, the head of the very highly regarded Victorian Public Service in his role as the Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet. Now, that is a fantastic interview. And it's a really a great interview because there's some great insights and understanding as to how the Victorian Public Service has responded through COVID and how they have organised themselves. So, uh, I commend that to you and uh, stay tuned because we do have other podcasts heading your way. More about that in the weeks to come. So next week, we move into the world of integrity. Reputation for the Australian Public Service has never been higher, but it one of those things that it is so critical that the APS look out for um, and how it, it manages that reputation because it is such an asset. So we will be joined by uh, three guests, Michael Manthorpe, the Commonwealth Ombudsman, Grant, Grant Hare, the Auditor General of Australia, and Angeline Falk, who is the Australian Information and Privacy Commissioner. So I'm really looking forward to having that conversation to understand how they are looking at integrity and how they maintain that. So certainly thanks so much to my guests today, to Brendan and to Caroline. A wonderful conversation. Thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. But we'll be back at the same time next week with another edition of Work With Purpose. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.